0: Shoreshore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we continue our look at the book of Genesis, the message entitled The Foundations of the World. We have a lot of things coming up, Women's Lectio Divino group, which is going to kick off here in a couple of weeks. We have our Sunday of service coming up on July 1st where we will be doing service projects around the community instead of our regular scheduled service that Sunday. And you can stay tuned to all these things at northshorevineyard.org or on our Facebook page. But for now, let's go ahead and head to North Shore Vineyard Church for the service. Thanks for listening. A story this week, and that, that was a, a, a little, a little, a small ray of sunshine in the typical news about North Korea, and the Middle East, and the economy and school shootings. I read a little, little story that kind of caught my eye this week. Drew Brees bought a shirt for two hundred sixty-four thousand dollars. Y'all hear about that? Two hundred sixty-four thousand dollars. What kind of shirt is this? I was I was puzzled by the by the headline. I'm thinking, is this like one of these high tech shirts that's made out of nanotubes and you know has a cooling system in it that'll help you playing football and stuff? Turns out he bought a basketball jersey for two hundred and sixty four thousand dollars. That's ridiculous, huh? <laughs> no. It, it, so if, does anybody know of a guy named John Wooden? I didn't know who he was. I had to look the guy up. Uh, I did. I know nothing about basketball. Basket, when other people were learning to play basketball, I was playing piano uh, in, in my room alone. Uh, <laughs> that's where music comes from, people. <laughs> uh, so, so Drew Brees buys this jersey from John Wooden, and, and I, I was reading about John Wooden. Is, uh, is that how you pronounce it? Is it Wooden or Wooden? Wouldn't, wouldn't. I'm a real boy, for me. (laughs) And so he was. um, At one point, he led the uh, UCLA basketball team to ten champions that he won in twelve years, and seven those seven of those were in a row. And I don't know anything about basketball, but I hear that's a good thing, right? People who know basketball. Actually, there's been no other team in history that has come close to the record that he had. So Drew Brees spends $264,000 buying his jersey, jersey from when he played basketball. And then he promptly loaned it out to Purdue, his alma mater, so they can people can look at it in their athletic department. Now, along those lines, uh, the guy on base this morning, Bobby McDonald. Bobby, you here? Raise your hand, Bobby. Bobby, the reason he's on the team this morning is because we have a vineyard conference starting tomorrow night down in Kenner. And so I figured Bobby's coming into town. I'm, I'm, anytime I get a chance to play with Bobby, he produced my last album and played on the, the album we recorded here, We Are One. But Bobby's got a brother named Raymond who also played on my last two albums. And Raymond is, is a character. But Raymond, um, what was the guy's name? Oh, yeah, yeah. Raymond has a son named Sam. Who, ever since I've known Sam, when I go to visit over at the Conroe Vineyard where Raymond is the pastor, and I'm leading worship, Sam from the youngest age always wanted to be on stage with a guitar. I mean, he loves playing guitar, and he's serious about it. He's like a bluesman. I mean, he comes up with a, you know, he's got a blazer on, a hat, and I mean, he's he's all about business. When we were recording my last album, uh, Sam shows up at the studio. We're doing a session one day over there in Texas, and Sam is hanging out in the studio, and it's like 1130 at night. We've been in the studio all day. We're tired, ready to go home, and he has his effects pedals and his guitar. He's like, "Uh, I thought we were going to make a record here, guys. (laughs) And so we had a song called We Don't Know. It's It's a very strange song, and we said, okay, Sam, give us what you got. He'd never heard the song. We said it's in the key of G, and he actually just went in there and kicked butt, nailed it on the first take, and he actually made the record. And we, we did not let Raymond down. We, know we had to keep jabbing Raymond with that because Raymond you know, spent a lot of time on his parts. And we're like, Sam comes in here and he just kicks butt on the first try. Well, Sam has been into guitar since he was the, the, the littlest of kids. And a few years ago, Raymond gets an email from a guy saying, how do you want me to ship this guitar to you? And Raymond's like, guitar? What kind of car? Guitar. You know, the 59 Strat that you bought on eBay from me. <laughs> For $80,000. <laughs> it, it turns out Sam figured out how to get on eBay. And and the good thing is Raymond has raised him right in, in, as far as, like, tasting guitars. A 59 Strat. If you're, if you're going for a Strat, that's a good year. Um, but this one was apparently owned by Stevie Ray Vaughan. <laughs> Which explains its high price tag. Why is it, though, that a T-shirt can be sold for $264,000. A simple Fender Stratocaster can be sold for $80,000. Why is that? Well, it's because they mean something, right? They've got a story attached to them. It's not just a shirt. This shirt is attached to a story. It's attached to a person. It's attached to greatness. It's attached to innovation. It's attached to to something that nobody else has ever done. That's why we want things like that, because it really has to do with an origin story. And origin stories are are very important to us, whether it's about a shirt or a guitar. I even read, I was trying to find this article, I I read a few years ago in uh, in the technology industry out of Silicon Valley. They, They wrote a story a few years ago saying that it had become quite fashionable for these tech companies to try to create an origin story about a garage, you know, every, every, like, Google was looking for, like, where can we have our garage that we can say this is where everything started out? Because I think Apple and, and Hewlett Packard, like, these actually started out in garages. And that's, like, the cool thing. Because if something starts out in a garage, somebody starts out just tinkering with computer equipment in a garage, and then they go on to make billions of dollars, that's a story that we can all get on board with. The guy that just inherits a billion dollars from a trust fund from his dad he may be successful, but that's not a cool story, right? So these tech companies were actually trying to buy their garage, you know, buy a garage so they could create this mythology around the founding of their company. Because that story appeals to the stories of our country that our story, our, our country holds most dearest. In, in America, that's one of the central things we love to hold on to. Like anybody with just a little hard work and determination can can make a success out of their life. Origin stories mean something to us. Origin stories shape our identity in certain ways, shape our values. You know, in ancient Rome, there's a there's a story you can go look up. I've actually tried to... There's several versions of it. I can't figure out which one's the... I, I, there's actual se- several versions from antiquity, but the story of the founding of the city of Rome. Romulus and Remus were... Um, these, these twins, their mother was, her her dad was the king. He gets overthrown by another guy, and this other guy decides, well, we don't want you having any more kids, or having any kids, that, that might threaten the kingly line. So he forced her to become a vestal virgin in the temple. So she was going to have to live a life of abstinence and not have any heirs that might threaten the throne. Well, Mars, the god of war, ends up having a sexual uh, union with her, um, several stories actually say it was a non-consensual sexual union, she gets pregnant, she has twin, t- twin sons, Romulus and Remus, and they get exiled from the empire, basically, long story short, they get tossed in a basket in a river, they float down the river, end up washing on shore, and they are rescued by a she-wolf, and the she-wolf, you can actually see, uh, there, there's all these statues and pictures uh, from ancient times about this wolf, you know, nursing two little boys. It's kind of a strange picture, actually. So they were raised by a wolf, and then eventually they grow up, and they decide to found a city, the city of Rome. But these two brothers can't get along, and Romulus kills Remus and then founds the city of Rome. Now, what does that story tell you? If that is your origin story, what is it in that origin story that is some of the central values. I mean, that's a pretty jacked-up story. <laughs> well, it tells you that the most important thing is power and might, even when it comes to your own family. Is it any wonder that, that Rome became one of the most brutal empires that the world has ever known? I mean, look at this cross on our wall. When we look at this cross in the middle of worship, when we're singing, when will I ever learn to live in God? This, this cross may fill you with, with awe and wonder. It may be a comfort. You may wear a cross around your neck. But if you were back in the first century and you came into a room that had one of these on the wall, you would feel creeped out. You would you'd get an uneasy feeling in your stomach like, what's about to happen here? This was not a sign, a sign of peace to, to people in the early first century. The cross was invented by Rome not to just kill people, but to kill them in a horrible, brutal way and use them as a billboard. I actually read an account that where Jesus was growing up in Galilee, there was a village only about 20 miles from him where... Uh, the Romans actually came in and they crucified hundreds of people when Jesus would have been a young kid. And they said you could hear the screams from miles around. Hundreds of people, men, women, and children. Why does Rome do that? Because why kill somebody when you can make a billboard out of them? they they leave them hanging up there for weeks. And it was a sign that said, basically, the meaning was, if you ever get the idea to mess with Rome, Take a look at this. And remember, this is what happens. But even that is rooted directly in the origin stories of Rome. Power is the only thing that matters. Now, this is where I I, I say all that about origin stories because when we come to the, the story of Genesis... It shares a lot lot in common with other ancient Near East stories from the Babylonians, the Sumerians, even the Egyptians. There's a lot of overlap. And some people have said, well, that means that that the Hebrew story is just a derivative of the other stories. But in spite of its similarities, where Genesis is different from these other stories, it is striking. If you were growing up in ancient Babylon, your creation story would have been this. I know I'm covering a lot of myths today. (laughs) Ancient Babylon, they believed, their, their creation story was there was this goddess named Tiamat. And her husband had been killed by some other gods. So she was trying to avenge her husband's death. And she took the form of this giant sea monster and she waged war against the other gods and goddesses. And ultimately, this guy named Marduk, one of the gods, he said, I'll go kill her if the rest of you gods agree that I can be your ruler if I kill her. And they're like, ah, that sounds good to me. So Marduk goes and kills her. And the slain body of this sea monster, then he makes the heavens and the earth. And where do humans come from? The slain body of Tiamat's son. said that Marduk took uh, the blood of this, this, fallen, this other fallen being and mixes it with the dirt and created the first human beings. Now, let's think about that story for a minute. If you're growing up in ancient Babylonia, what does that story communicate to you about your existence in the world? It's a pretty bleak story. Because basically, humans... Oh, this is the other part I left out. Humans were only created because the gods were lazy and they didn't want to, you know, take care of things. And so humans, they needed humans to feed them and do all this stuff. That's where a lot of the sacrifice uh, in in ancient Babylon was tied into. So if if that is your origin story in ancient Babylon, you, you are left with this. The creation of the world, the universe, comes out of the decaying body of a monster. Human beings come out of the decaying offspring of that monster. And that the only only place that humans have in this world is trying to keep the gods happy. You can't say that any of the gods of ancient Babylonia or Samaria or Rome or Greece or so many more religions have anything to do with goodness. They're only motivated by selfishness and self-preservation. And that's a pretty bleak world to get into. What does the Bible say, though, in Genesis? A good God creates a good creation, and he creates human beings in his image and likeness. We're all in the image of God. Some of y'all might say, I don't know. I don't know about this person over here. I don't know if they're in the image. Every single person from Mother Teresa to Hitler has been created in the image of God. Now, that might sound uh, off-putting. But as I said a couple weeks ago, we're all created in the image of God. What's missing is the likeness of God. We don't all look like God. But we are all created from the, the, the very ground of being is goodness and love. That's where we come from. That's where we come from. What Genesis tells us is that when God created the heavens and the earth, he meant to do it. And he meant to create you and me. It was intentional, and it was good. And we were created on the sixth day of creation, it says in the Genesis story, after God echoes this refrain from one creation day to the next, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. When it comes to the sixth day of creation, when God creates human beings, it says, and God looked at his creation and saw, not that it was just good, it was very good. That is our origin. The very goodness of and love of God. But in spite of all of that, (laughs) and this is is a very long intro to get to where we're going today. In spite of all that, we do see bloodshed in the Genesis story. It is not just a happy story. (laughs) We see violence. We see, like Romulus and Remus, we see brother killing brother. We looked at this story two weeks ago, and I'm not going to, to... recap too much of that, because I want to kind of go a different direction with this today, but the story of Cain and Abel is the story of the first murder. It also leads into the story of the first city. Cain and Abel, Cain was a, a farmer, Abel was a shepherd, they come to bring offerings to the Lord of their crops and their herd. We don't know why Genesis doesn't really tell us why God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice and accepted Abel's, but we know that God didn't, and and Cain becomes, he feels rejected. And God tells Cain something. He says, "Cain, if you just do well, it would go well for you." I, I find myself telling my kids that quite a bit. You know, my kids are working on a project for school, and I'm like. Try again. You can do better than this. I feel like that's kind of what God is saying to Cain. But, but God says this, gives Cain this warning. He says, Look out because sin is crouching at the door and it is desire. Its desire is for you and you should master over it. Every one of us will face pain and suffering and rejection and hard times in our life. Every human will face that. But how we respond to that makes all the difference in the world. And we were meant not to let that beast in because the imagery is of this this animal, this predatory animal that is ready to pounce on Cain. We're not supposed to let that thing in. When you get rejected, you can walk through the pain of that and try to get healed. Or you can get angry. And you can stew on your anger. And you can fantasize about how you want to hurt the other person. And that unforgiveness over time will turn into resentment and it will ultimately turn into contempt. Or what we see with Cain, it becomes a hatred for being itself. Every one of these mass shootings, or not every one of them, but for the most part, I just saw a chilling video the other day from the guy that did the, the Florida shooting. And there's a hatred of, of being itself. These guys who were rejected by girls, who rejected their advances, they feel horrible because of that. And I know that sucks, especially when you're a teenager, to be rejected by somebody and you make a bigger deal out of it probably than you ought to because you feel everything very intensely at that age. But instead of doing the hard work of taking responsibilities for those feelings and trying to get into a healthy place and walk in forgiveness, these guys let that stuff turn into poison. And and the only fruit that it bore was a very hatred for being itself. And we see this story happening every few weeks in our world. And I don't think it's going to change if we don't address the hard issue. But where we pick up the story... Genesis 4.9, it's on the first of your bulletin. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? You know, I said a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Adam and Eve eating the, the forbidden fruit that God comes looking for him, and says, where are you? That question wasn't because God didn't know where they were. It was actually a matter of helping them realize where they were, Right? <laughs> You can be in church on Sunday morning and be in hell at the same time, right? I mean, sometimes, I I don't know why it is, oftentimes when couples are getting ready to drive to church, that's when the biggest fights happen. And so you walk in the door, you grab your cup of coffee, and you're like, that son of a... When will I? (laughs) You can be in a place geographically and be somewhere else. And that's what's going on with Cain and Abel. God asks, where is your brother? The question isn't really where is your brother. I know where your brother is. Where are you? You have shifted. You're not in the same place. You're in hell right now. And, And Cain's answer is interesting. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your your, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's, brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven away. Driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be like a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And if anyone meets me, they will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and named it Enoch after his son, Enoch. You know, a lot of Bible scholars actually uh, date the writing of Genesis to, to the Babylonian exile. So it's one of the darkest times in, in, the, in the history of the Jewish people. If you look at the Old Testament, when the, when the Old Testament law comes along, basically it boils down to this. If you follow the covenant... You will dwell in the land, the land will prosper. If you don't follow the covenant, the land the the land's not going to produce fruit, and ultimately you will be sent into exile. What do we see with, with Adam and Eve? They get kicked out of the garden. What do we see with Cain? The, the, the soil is going to not produce. It's gonna it's gonna be rough going for him. And that that's I, I think that that in a sense why these stories were actually getting written down during the Babylonian exile is because They were explaining where Israel was as well. Israel was taken captive by the Babylonians, the best and the brightest, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, Daniel. They were taken to Babylon and, and made to work in the government. It was a very dark time. But these stories are speaking to why are we not in our land? Why is things so tough for us? So in a sense, this is trying to answer that. But we see in this that God has mercy. God should have killed Cain. Cain, Cain. Cain just murdered his brother, and it was in a calculated way. It wasn't just a crime of passion. This, was, this would have been first-degree murder. Hey, brother, let's go out in the field. He doesn't see it coming. But God has mercy. And I don't know what that, that mark that, that God put on his head was. I don't know if it was like some tattoos or something that said, don't kill this dude or you're, you're going to be cursed. But God has mercy. But the thing that's interesting that that I want to focus in on this today is that Cain goes on and builds a city. Most of the origin myths that you can find around the world for civilization have to do with violence, bloodshed, retribution, just like Rome. And we even see something in this story, it's the oldest story. Civilizations around the world have been built on the blood of innocent victims, have been built on the blood of people who uh, have been run over by empires, they've been built on revenge, on covetousness, and this story speaks to that. Revelation has this, Revelation chapter 13, I think verse 9 says, talks about Jesus being the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. What is the foundations of the world? It's retributive violence. It's war. It's bloodshed. It's the powerful dominating the weak. That's the foundations of modern civilization. But we find in the book of Revelation that Jesus is refounding civilization. And he's doing it through self-sacrificial love. Revelation chapter five. Then I saw. By the way, this is uh, the Apostle John, is caught up into this vision of heaven. He he's he's up in the throne room. He sees God sitting on the throne. There's elders. There's crazy beings flying around with with wings and covered in eyes, and. Um, in Revelation chapter 5, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with, scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? This scroll is the plans of God for redemption. It's, it's God's original plans. And back with Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, we see that God's plans for creation, they got stalled. Everything was hung up. God's plan for for human beings to rule and reign and steward creation as they're in relationship with God, that was God's original intent. But that plan, ever since Genesis chapter 3, it's been thrown off. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside of it. No one, not even God on the throne. And it says, I wept. I wept bitterly. Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Imagine the feeling that John is having. The plans of God for the flourishing of his good creation are held back. Empires like Rome are dominating the scene with violence and brutality. The very people of God are dominated by this godless empire. And John just begins to weep. It's never going to be made right. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. What is this language? The lion of the tribe of David, that is messianic language. This is language of a conquering king. But John turns to look at this lion, this this conquering king, and he doesn't see a lion. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, slaughtered standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scrolls and to open." Open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor. And glory and power forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, "Amen." And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's quite a worship service, huh? It's cosmic in its scope. This worship start service that starts out in the throne room of God, it spills out to encompass all of heaven, then all of earth, and then everybody under the earth. I don't know how that works. This worship service encompasses everything. Everyone. And what is it? It is the revelation that this lion, this conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, has overthrown evil, but he didn't do it like a lion, he did it like a lamb. Come on now. (laughs) Dr. Brad Cole. In commenting on this passage, he says this, Is God worthy? You bet he is. But he's worthy not simply because he is the strongest being in the universe. God isn't worthy because he tells tells us so. And who are you to question God? No, God is worthy because in Jesus he proved that his infinite power is equally matched by his love and humility. God became a human being and then very carefully, so as not to scare us, gently whispered in our ear, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. I am. This knowledge is what triggered the escalating praise in this passage. Jesus conquers, not like Alexander the Great, not like Genghis Khan. Not like Hitler, not like Napoleon, not like Julius Caesar. God doesn't work that way. You want to see the power of God? It is self-sacrificial love. Now, I told you a few weeks ago, probably the, well, I've I've told you many times, but probably the best way to understand Genesis 1 is that God is creating a temple for himself. Now, God's temple is the universe, (laughs) The Garden of Eden can be understood as the, as the Holy of Holies. And the only image that is allowed in God's temple where there are no images, graven images, idols allowed, is the image that God makes, which is what? Us. We are created in the image of God. And we are allowed to be in God's temple to rule and reign on God's behalf. But here we see that in God's temple, the only sacrifice is God Himself? God builds the temple, God sets the image of it, and God even becomes the very sacrifice in the temple. God incarnate. God steps into our world and becomes one of us. Nine months in the womb of Mary. He had to be taken care of, fed clothed by his mother Mary in those early years of his life. He grew up, he he worked with his father Joseph. 30 years Jesus spent just being a regular guy before he did anything that he gets credit for in the Gospels. Why did he do all that? Because he loves us. That's why he's worthy, folks. Because that's what love is. We talk about love these days as if it's like a Hallmark card. You know, I love you. Love is going to conquer all, you know. The people who really love you, they stick with you. They enter into your world. And Jesus did that with humanity. He steps in our world as the second Adam who would be faithful where the first Adam filled. As the second Cain who wouldn't kill his brother but would lay down his own life for his friends. And this is the civilization that Jesus is founding in his own blood. It is a civilization, the kingdom of God. It is based on love, on goodness, on honesty, on care, on compassion. That's the world that Jesus is forming. And we in the church keep keep falling back into playing the games of the the, the powers of this world. We keep aligning ourselves with political parties and with governments and keep playing that game. That is antichrist. It's okay to have political points of view. I'm just saying we're in the kingdom of God, folks. Our allegiance is God. Our allegiance is to him who sits on the throne, (laughs) And we show our fidelity to this Jesus Christ by taking seriously the message of Jesus and walking to follow it out. And as we do, we undo the curse of Adam, we undo the curse of Cain, we guard our hearts. We realize that forgiveness is one of the most powerful things in the universe. Even Jesus hanging bloody and beaten on the cross with his last dying words. What did he say? Forgive them, Father. They don't even understand what they're doing. Every time you get hurt by someone and you choose to go down the difficult path of forgiveness, and it is difficult. Don't let anybody lie to you. Forgiving someone is one of the hardest things you're going to do in the world, but it's a lot easier than letting your life be destroyed from the inside out by rot. We forgive other people because we're living as citizens of a different kingdom. We have compassion because Jesus showed us compassion. We show mercy because God's shown us mercy. We speak the truth and love because that's what Jesus has done with us. Today I want to close the message by we're going to take communion together and we're going to sing one last worship song. I won't get the band up here, but I'll, I'll lead us in it. But as we come to the table this morning, let us come with a picture of Revelations 5 in our, in, in our minds. The Je- this Jesus is worthy precisely because of stepping into our world, precisely because of being faithful even to death on the cross. Jesus has shown his solidarity with our humanity in everything that you and I will ever face, even death. And we trust in his resurrection power. So we come today to this table, the bread representing the body of Christ broken, that we might find wholeness, that we would be put back together The very blood of Jesus that doesn't speak of retribution. It doesn't speak of continuing the cycle of violence. It doesn't speak of revenge. It speaks a better word. One of forgiveness. God in Jesus Christ has reconciled us to the very goodness and love that that is at the center of being that, that, that we all came from. So as we break this bread... We take this cup. And by the way, the way we do it here, if you're new, we take the bread. As you take it, somebody's going to look in your eyes and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. When you take the cup, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and somebody will tell you, look you in your eyes, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. As we do that, we're not just remembering Jesus, but we are signing up to be broken and poured out for other people. Do this in remembrance of me. You be broken and poured out. Don't live retributively. Don't live in jealousy and anger. Live freely and lightly because who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So come up here to the front, anybody. Uh, We're going to invite our um, community team, and I'm going to lead us through one last song, and we will call it a day.